Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Second Act Actors. I'm your host, Dr. Janet McMorty. And yeah, you got it. I'm still a medical doctor simultaneously trying to pursue a career in acting. My guest this week is Eliza Shin. Eliza is another doctor actor, a fellow doctor actor. She is the second one I've had on my podcast. The first, of course, was Dr. Francesca Decker. Definitely check that episode out if you haven't heard it already. Eliza is not my last. We are coming out of the woodwork, folks. Doctors, actors, doctor actors, it's fantastic. So Eliza actually started the Facebook group Dr. Actors. And so, of course, we are all this lovely little community on Facebook of doctors who also like to pursue acting. She has an incredible story. She was a board-certified urologist, excuse me, board-certified urologist, and now has pursued a career in acting. She has an inspiring story. She's got a lot of, I'm going to say rage, but like in a good way, because I feel it, you know, about the medical system, medical training. And uh, for those of you who've gone through that, I think you will really relate to her story. But honestly, those of you who have been through pretty rigorous training in any of your first acts, and honestly, theater school, there's a lot of comparisons. And uh, it's pretty intense when you look back what you had to go through to get to where you are today. So this is a really intense story. You're going to love it. Please enjoy the incredibly motivating and inspiring Eliza Shin. Honestly, I think most people are just, whenever I tell them about the Facebook group, people who aren't doctors or actors or people who are doctors, they're like, there's more than just Ken Jeong. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows one celebrity and just can't fathom that other people may also follow those footsteps. I know, right? Yeah. And then, of course, he's like the pinnacle of like success, right? So they're like, oh, just you're a doctor and an actor like Ken Jong. I'm like, yes, exactly like him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think in general, it speaks to the fact that unless you're a celebrity, most people don't understand that there's a whole working class set of actors who have put their children through college, purchased houses, you know, spent decades living a life as a career, you know, for lack of a term, better term, journeyman actor. So, yeah. People think unless you're yeah, famous, I think that's... You're, you, you're not an actor. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, to be honest... I, I, I I don't know if I ever thought exactly that, but I guess I don't I don't think I really realized how much one how much work it would be to ever get to that point of like quote unquote celebrity, um, or two how much work there is to be that type of actor and how fulfilling it is, right? That kind of you know day player or community theater or indie films and stuff like that. I mean, it's lovely. <laughs> I think it's the same way that being a physician is misunderstood. I think in general, people misunderstand each other in life. 
and you only, you know, see the glossy veneer and you have no idea um, what goes into charting, CMEs, educational credits or whatever, you know, malpractice insurance, blah, blah, blah. And on the side of being an actor, the business aspect of it that nobody sees, you know, um, the soft skills that are needed, all of that. So it's, it's, I, I just resigned myself to just being misunderstood. Yeah, and I'm sure it's true in every industry, right? Like what you were saying, there's so much more to it than we want to, than I think we even want to understand just because it would take too much brain power, right? I remember trying to, during the, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were some people who were just kind of confused about, you know, why isn't my surgery being done? And I was trying to explain to them about like all these step, by step inner workings of the hospital of how an actual surgery gets done all the way down to like the cleaner has COVID. So you can't, that's a step that is now missing. And they're like, oh, I never thought about that. And you're like, yeah, fair enough. Right. You never have had to. Fair enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So true. A lot of people are really bad at systems thinking, period. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. just did um, my short film and bless his heart, one of my actors, like two months out, it's like, so do you have an idea of my call time? And I was sort of like, you have no idea everything that goes, your call time is one of the last things that I am going to attend to. But in your little, almost narcissistic world, you want to know what time you're going to have to be on set so that you know what time to leave. <laughs> like... You know, whatever. Yeah, I think we're all kind of like the sun in our own little we're solar system. Totally like the sun. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh man. So tell me your story. How did you get into this crazy world of acting? And also, you are a fellow doctor actor. Yes. So. I'd like to tell, first of all, I no longer have an active license, so that is all done. And um, I don't know if you or listeners have seen some of my other pieces, but um, trigger warning, I write a lot about suicide awareness because I was uh, flagrantly suicidal pretty much through childhood, teenage years, even through um college and med school to a certain degree, but especially during residency, it was at its peak. Um, Largely because my mother passed when I was right about to turn four years old. So I have memories of being in a hospital frequently as a child. So I'm sure there's some sort of desire in there unconsciously even maybe to get back to mom. Um, A hospital had been uh, a place of just an ordinary part of my world, even at that very young age. So um, through because of various like family traumas and dysfunctions, I found quick and easy solace in saying I was going to be not only a go into medicine, that was actually secondary to being a missionary. Um, as many children or people do in times of chaos, sometimes you either succumb to the chaos and get even more like dissociated or you cling to 
things of control and religion was a place of control. And then I also knew even at that age <laughs> that I had enough intellect that being just a missionary wouldn't be enough. So I heaped on being a doctor on top of that. Up to then, I swore I'd never become a doctor. It held no appeal for me. But those were those teenage years. Um, the way a lot of young girls used to run to a convent in order to kind of have an identity and some control over their life. It was not an emotional match for me, but it was an intellectual match. And the idea of emotional intelligence was only beginning to surface um, back in the 80s and 90s. So during medical school, I had the intellect to get through. And I suspected that I didn't really like it, but I did like intellectual competition and I did like excelling and um, I did want to belong somewhere. So I had the ability to match in urology, which at the time, you know, 17,000 medical students a year, 42 spots in the country. Plus I was female. It was a way of providing service to gender inequity, and I got a spot at a decent institution. And during my surgical intern year, it just, suddenly I wasn't special anymore, right? Like, I was just another surgical intern, and gender became so important right after medical school. Because all my male former classmates now were at the top of the social heap. They were surgeons, female nurses were falling all over them to get on now to the rest of their lives. And I realized that the rest of my life needed qualifications I didn't have. I wasn't fun anymore if ever. I wasn't feminine because I tried so hard to be androgynous and kind of male passable so that I'd be accepted by that group. Um, because of the emotional nature of everything at the hospital, my only coping mechanism was to distance myself and become hard and angry and... Um, frustrated. I also am small in stature, plus I'm an Asian female. So I had to overcompensate in order to, you know, kind of make my status or presence known. And so then I became, I was just bossy and pushy. It just, it was a terrible, terrible match. Um, and Somewhere along the line, I realized I'm pretty gifted and now I'm making some decent money and it makes no sense that I'm perpetually suffering and resentful for having to wake up in the mornings. Um, I had started therapy my first semester of medical school because of a lecture in um, the psychiatry department made me realize, I think I need a little bit of help. 
Um, this is all to say I knew I needed to get out of medicine. Something told me that. So um, I switched from urology to radiology because I needed to pay off my loans somehow. I barely made it through radiology residency because of just all my mental health issues, but I made it through. I paid off my loans in six and a half years, and two weeks later, I put in my notice. All that time, I thought music was going to be my salvation because I'd been musical as a child, and then for a few years, I pursued enough music to realize I'm not cut out for the life of a professional musician, and I started having the same feelings towards music that I had with medicine, like, uh, are we done yet? I, I just didn't have that natural um, um, kind of curiosity. But at the same time I started music, someone had said I should, you know, get an agent in Chicago. And little by little, acting just sort of stuck around. And so it it's not a glamorous story of, Oh, I've always thought of being an actor, but I had to just fulfill certain responsibilities, but I held out and now I'm successful. That's not it at all. It's sort of like I had a first long-term relationship, almost marriage with medicine. I needed to divorce myself from it. I thought this other person was going to be able to be my identity. That didn't work out, but kind of this sleeper career in the background has come to the fore. So that's a that's a long answer, but I, I I want people to understand that sometimes you just make the wrong decision as a teenager. When you were a kid and you were in and you were doing music, like did you would you have described yourself as a creative person? Like, was there always kind of a creativity to your childhood that you maybe, not maybe, I shouldn't say that, not like I'm trying to imply anything, but like that you, that is, was missing during medicine? Like, what do you think was that part of it? So, yeah, the question is like, were there any clues at all? Were there any sort of, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, little breadcrumbs? I did enjoy performing. And I was very, um, I scrutinized that as I was, you know, going through these classes and everything in Chicago because there's a difference between wanting to be a performer because naturally you are one versus wanting to perform because you need some sort of eyes on you for other reasons. I mean, it's a very, it's a razor thin line between um, that's the space that you, you feel like is home versus um, constantly wanting to feel special and, and, and be the center of attention. I, I did enjoy performing. I remember like at the piano, I would um, play some pieces with like, just like a melodramatic amount of emotion. Um, in sixth grade, we put on the importance of being earnest and I could tell I naturally understood how a script should be lifted from the page. And yet the other students were just clearly reading the words and 
I didn't know what I should do. Um, but I, I also had an absence of a, any like adult guidance really as a child. So, um, so I was off, you know, so there was nobody to say, Hey, follow that. My mother, my biological mother had been an artist, like seamstress, fine arts, all kinds of things. So there might have been something from that end. Um, so perhaps there was, and I think music seemed easy because it's what I call an art of execution. You hide behind mm -hmm. your instrument or the song or whatever. It's not really you. I was coming from a bilingual, bicultural home too. I didn't understand a lot of human dynamics on the TV or in a play because they were culturally unfamiliar to me. Um, so I think in that respect, being an actor made absolutely no sense. Also, I've always been very practical. Like it was clear to me, I'm a second class citizen. Nobody really wants to be educated, you know, in order to tell a story, people have to understand your world, but no one's going to understand your world, my world, without a lot of like ancillary education. Well, then it's a lecture. It's not a story anymore. I'll just be the fruit seller on the side as all the white people or black people play out their story. Then we don't have to explain me and things are palatable to a general audience. I mean, things have changed, but... Um, but I, I've always loved being part of the entertainment. I was in bands. I enjoyed, you know, employees only door. Like I always want to go to the employees only door. I want to be part of the workings of a spectacle that I love. So, um, yeah, I don't know what that is, but I've always had that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about like the performative aspect of your time as a urology, as a urological resident, right? Like there was very much a character that you were playing. Oh, without it. That's why I could match wherever I wanted to. I yeah. knew yeah. how to charm people, turn it on, like not in a seductive or malicious or manipulative sort of way, but I definitely knew my way around people. But I could feel there was, again, a point in residency where I'm like, I can tell I always mirror the person who's most in power in the room. So any mm -hmm. attending that would show up, I would become like Carrie. Carrie was loud. She spoke in a certain rhythm. But it was so ingrained in me to just acquiesce or mirror that person. And then when, you know, Mike Carter was in the room, you know, we would talk a little softer and we would talk about certain topics, you know. And then when Bill Middleton was in the room, we would talk like this. I And I remember going home, I'm like, I don't think this is right. I like, I don't know quite who I am. But it was mm -hmm. such a survival mechanism ever since I was a child and it got me where I needed to go. Um, that, yeah, I absolutely, 
it's that thing like we talked about at the very beginning. I had this veneer of what it would be to be a doctor or a urology person or somebody accepted into an old boys club. And I didn't realize, well, then I have to hang around the old boys all the time and I'm not mm-hmm. going to fit in. I don't care about what they're talking about. Suddenly I have to actually be one of the boys, not just be desired and accepted by one of the boys. And I'm like, I'm in trouble. Hmm. And I wonder about, because I've, I've feel about medicine being so checkboxy and like work the steps all the way up the totem pole until there is no more steps. And then when you're done all the steps, you're like, oh, I'm at the top. Oh, this, there's nowhere else to go. Wow, this kind of sucks. Because there's nothing to strive for anymore. And it's kind of a shock when you're there. And you're like, oh, now I'm the person that people are trying to work their way up to. I don't like it. Where when you're trying to work your way up, there's kind of a gratification and kind of a competitiveness to get there. There's always that, um, you know, get first, you know, between tests scores on tests, um, institutions you're going to go to, fellowships, and then you're this lack of identity. Um, some people will throw like getting married and children to like give something there. But then, I mean, this is, this is the one thing I know I've always had. I've always been able to see people in a way that other people haven't just because in conversations mm-hmm. I can tell like, oh, you don't see that the way I do. But you could see all these people adding on stuff to try to be special. You know, oh, um, you know, Ross plays in a band on the side. And I'm like, I'm glad you have a hobby, but there's a, again, a performative element to this. You, everybody was trying so hard, not everybody, but so many people were trying so hard to bring out some part of themselves that was distinguishable from the rest of the herd rather than there were a couple of people I could see who like genuinely enjoyed medicine and they derived vitality from the work itself and they had hard days but they were authentically who they were and you could smell that out versus these people who would try to been a myth about themselves in the reading room kind of as a way of staying special because they'd been special their whole lives and I'm like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. can you smell the rot in that like it's you've told it too many times it's mm-hmm, dead mm-hmm. on the vine oh like so yeah I just uh anyway I forgot your original question but yes it, there was this there's this thing that happens, and that's why so many surgeons, I feel like, turn into these tantrum throwers, you know, uh, these bombastic, unchecked ids, because they, they're, they're just one of the crowd, but they want some validation, they don't know what to do. They're emotionally stunted. Ugh, I mean, yes, there's so much personal emotional carnage in the medical field. I never mm-hmm. felt a real kinship to my colleagues 
by and large. And I'm like, that's a problem too. I should enjoy these people that I work with, but I never felt like I fed it, fit in. And I had to also ask myself how much of that is self-generated and how much of that is real. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, and I, I take myself back to when I was in school and my at like high school, elementary school, undergrad, thinking about a career in medicine and being told, you better go do a bunch of stuff to make your application stand out. Because I know in the States, I think there's, I'm sure it's it's obviously still very competitive to get into medical school in the States. In Canada, it's like ridiculous. The medical school I went to, there were 7,000 applicants for 200 spots. So you're told at a young age, if you want to be a doctor you're going to be competing against the elite of the elite of the elite, people who've traveled to Africa to cure Ebola, people who've volunteered their entire life, people who have played the drums in a Grammy-winning rock band. I don't know. You better do some stuff to stand out. And so how can you not cover your resume with things to try and make yourself look and feel special? But then also adding on to that kind of superficiality of my, you know, extracurriculars and a lot of us in medicine, we were also told because we were like, you are really smart. You're really talented. You're gifted because we were right. That's why how we got into medicine. But didn't nothing prepared us for when all of that stops. And that sounds extremely privileged. I hearing that coming out of my mouth like, whoa, is me. But it was a gut check, definitely, when I said, oh, now I'm here and I'm done? Okay. Oh, yeah. I remember sitting in the cafeteria once with my, like, Chinese-American, you know, co-resident. We looked at each other when we were in, like, it was... It was the dead part of second year of radiology. So we were, like, smack in the middle of five years of residency. And we're like, is that is this what we worked so hard for? And we also knew we were talking and we're this sad conversation. We're like, we don't know what to talk about. Like we were being honest, like outside of the hospital, you know, Scott was married and he's like, you know, we've thought about having people over, but like, what would we do? Would we play a game? Like we realized as human beings, we had no idea how to just interact because of the all-encompassing nature of what we'd pursued. It was it was a badge of honor to pull all-nighters as an undergrad. It was a badge of honor to like have such a brutal call that you'd never fallen asleep. All we'd known was to like show off how much we just abused ourselves and this culture of suffering. And then we realized we don't know how to just be people. We know how to function really well, but we don't know how to live. Mm-hmm. I've heard an analogy that it's kind of like being released from prison. Once you're finished your medical, like being released medical training and and working as a doctor, you, know, you kind of go into it and then you get released and you don't really know how to function in society. And then the kicker is that you put yourself there. You chose to do this 
And um, wasn't it a great honor that you got to do this? Because many want to do what you do and didn't have the opportunity. So you better be grateful. Right. And then also, I, because I, um, you know, I trained in the early to mid 90s, like, there was such a gender disparity still in medicine, and especially in certain fields, like, OB-GYN and PEDS were like riddled with women, but other places weren't. And the women I saw in, you know, the in, in my, like, they were these incredibly intelligent, single women by and large, just brittle personalities. No one liked to really be around them. They tended to run high anxiety. Um, they were just shells of, they were women by like chromosomal analysis only, but I didn't know who those people were either. Um, cause it was also a time of extreme, uh, division in what a woman was like you could, it was either, it was either body or brains and body at that time was all Victoria's secret angels. It was the time of the supermodel or I like to point out like high powered, intelligent women looked like Madeline Albright and Janet Reno, like to have any whiff of femininity was sort of like selling out almost until Alec McBeal showed up on TV and they had lawyers finally in sort of like slight like feminine suits but that had to happen after gender parity hit secondary education and postgraduate graduate education which didn't happen until the 90s i mean there were so many other factors that a, a a woman of a certain intellect had to deal with. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, like, even now I see my other Gen X male colleagues hitting their 50s and, like, they're just imploding because they haven't had to keep up with the times and they don't understand how they used to be masters of the universe and now they have to learn about diversity and, and they're just mad and sulky about it i mean it it's kind of a social personal maelstrom that some people aren't tolerating very well mm-hmm. yeah and i think we're going through a bit of a weird period in canada at least and i'm in the medical field and i'm it's probably similar in the states about how kind of Words getting out about the income disparity between male and female physicians in Canada, because we've reached parity. Actually, we've surpassed it. 52% of doctors in Canada are women, identify as women, which has never, obviously never happened before in our history. But we make significantly, significantly less than our male colleagues. And some of the comments that you read are make you want to destroy society with a matchbook, but um, <laughs> with with fire. But The big thing I remember reading was in our college, you know, the college complaints when the public complains about a doctor, when they complain on on average, when they complain about a male physician, it's about something went medically wrong with their care. You know, so you would say a justifiable complaint, right? Fair enough. We're humans. Humans make errors. The vast majority of complaints against female physicians was about their personality, about she was not nice to me, she made me wait. 
she did not spend enough time with me. So the soft skills, like you were saying, nothing about their care as doctors. In fact, there are studies that show care by female and female identifying physicians is superior because we spend so much time. But I was just fascinated by that. And it made me really angry because I know I, like you, or like you have tried to masculinize myself so much that my voice, when I listen to what I sounded like prior to medicine, my voice is actively deeper and kind of more forceful because I want to be more, I want to be seen as an equal and I want my patients to respect me. And that's how I think I can do that outside of becoming a white British male. Because then I'd look exactly like a doctor is supposed to look. Right. Well, also, um, and this is not a a well-voiced opinion, even if it's true, but I had a hard time getting any authority. Well, let me... There was a cohort of female uh, female nurses who did not want to take orders from me. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, yeah, yeah. I've never wanted to be a nurse. So there are certain things, you know, in there, right? And those obstructionist female nurses can ruin, ruin your care, ruin everything you're trying to do, Um and you were dealing with certain types of gendered issues that sometimes just required you to turn into a belligerent person in order to shove stuff through. And then there, I mean, there's also a subset of males who also weren't going to listen to you unless you, or they would try to get you to blow your top and all those things, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a lot of that. But then, you know, because this is about second act actors, I'll point out one reason that I really love the pursuit of acting, whether or not it takes me to, I don't know, wherever, um, is that it requires me, it requires that I be so honest with myself at all times, including my physical appearance, including what demographic I belong to, including how I relate to the world. And sometimes I don't like how I, my type relates to the world, but I, but it's also changing and also it's real. It's, you know, um, there are, it, it, it's, it's about having your pulse on society, like it or not. Um, whereas I think when you get, cordoned off into certain professions, and I see it across many professions, not just medicine, you still believe you're that 32-year-old physician that was finished and done, and and you don't realize like how you need to change some of your thinking patterns, how the world is changing around you, or else if you do realize the world's changing around you, you're often doing it in a reactive manner. Whereas in mm-hmm. acting, to be a working actor, you better be pretty savvy about how acting styles are changing, how um, products are changing, and so how like if you want to be a, if you want to be in commercials, um, TV shows change the tone of each TV show. Like I love that precision, that emotional, personal. Um, kind of social interactive precision that you 
have to have sort of, if you want to stay relevant, especially as, again, just a working class schmo actor, as opposed to like someone who's a star and therefore they just, their essence just sort of carries things. That's Mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I, and I even see so many people who want to pursue acting period, not just, you know, from other careers can't live up to that sort of honesty mm-hmm. or self scrutiny is not the right word, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's what it is about acting that's different than medicine and music where you're starting to feel, okay, when is this over? Like, is that what's kind of keeping the fire going for acting for you? I can see that I have the same natural persistent curiosity and um, questioning that some of my medical colleagues had with it. They're like, did you see that study that came out that showed that, you know, if you like change the, you know, the gradient echo for this, that like they were just genuinely curious. And to some extent, I have such an intellectual mind that that took me so far, you know, and music too, like to a certain extent, like I really enjoyed the execution of it, but there always came a limit at which I'm like, just keep moving, you know, like be done with it. But they're like, no, the sound is wrong. Like put more. And I'm just like, can we just play the song? Whereas here I will lose myself. Like the question is, where do you lose yourself? And I will lose myself in take after take of a self tape or, um, you know, watching a show and being like, well, what did they do here? Um, it satisfies my curiosity on, multiple levels in a way that's sustainable as opposed to this sort of like, you know, forced execution of skills and talents. And I can see in other people when they're like, you need a better self-tape set up. It'd be great if you got these lights. Oh God, like, do I have to get more lights? Like I can see where they're coming from. Take me back, if you don't mind, to the time when you did the switch, like in medicine saying, I don't think I can do this anymore. You kind of had alluded to like a bit of a kind of a pivot point um, that you said psych- uh, psychiatry, blah, psychiatry uh, talk in, med- in medicine. But take me back to that. I'm curious about that, if you don't mind talking about that, how that came about. And then I know you kind of did music for a bit, but... I want to dig deeper into why acting. So, um, the medicine, I mean, even my first semester of med school, like, I didn't enjoy it, you know? Um, I just, and like, I had the ability to just cold memorize facts but I knew people who would just devour the pathology book. It was just so interesting to them. And I'm like, there's something different between me and you. Um, and then mm-hmm. I, th- it was, I had the hardest time picking a specialty. And again, cause like you've got a creature that doesn't even belong in this terrarium and you're trying to find the right corner for them and I couldn't do that. And then so 
I just picked the thing that was going to make me the most special. You know, a female urologist, like you can't get much more special than that. Um, so, uh, I, you know, but during my surgical internship, I mean, it got to the point I was like crying all the time. I was blisteringly tired because that was still Q2 call. Also, because I just cold memorized facts without having a deep understanding, I could tell like I was running into certain walls about like what to do. Whereas like my co-resident Sean, who won intern of the year, you know, he just got it. So it made, you know, it made sense to him in a way that he could sort of like run and be a functional member of the team versus just a person executing orders. Like check these labs, follow up on the renal ultrasound, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, so I just also to, to be, you know, unfortunately, brutally honest, the, the day of early match, um, I remember walking back into my apartment at the time after I, the, the dean of the medical school had said, you've matched here. It's like, great. Number one, I didn't really want to stay there. I kind of had wanted to go someplace else, perhaps. But number two, I walked into my apartment. I was like, did I just want to see if I could get in? I had six years ahead of me of residency. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's... That's a telling thought that I kind of just wanted to see if the club would have me. So, I mean, there's, because it's not a decision that came in one day. It's just all these little things. And and then even as I yeah. did radiology, oh, there was problems with that. But I just had the, I kind of got the idea, I got to pay back these loans and then I'll have my freedom. So I just shoveled money at these loans. Mm -hmm. Um, also I'm lucky in the fact that I didn't feel a deep desire to like pursue things. I could see so many of my other colleagues finally are flush with money and they're like, oh gosh, I want to buy this, go out to dinner here, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I mean, I don't mind doing that sometimes, but I didn't need a lot of things that has been a gift that I've had in and of myself. Whereas people are like, I think next time we're going to go to Turks and Caicos. And I was like, have you been to the Caribbean yet? I mean, like, how different is it going to be? Like, I'd rather shovel my money at my loans. Um, I, of course, didn't tell my parents or any family members because I'd have to deal with that. Um, it was hard enough to personally stay alive. So I'm like, I can't even deal with that. Um, and then the acting... I think it's more like, I do like to think of these as like personal long-term relationships. The music, just novelty and everything just started to fade. And I also could see like, I'm not great at being a musician. Now, I'm not great at being an actor. And in fact, like I've had to learn quite a bit in these seven years that I've been in Los Angeles. But I guess it's the thing too that, it's okay to your ego to be not good at. 
Whereas everything else, I'd always gotten the quick hit of like, God, you're good at that. God, you're really good at that. God, you're good at that. So you're like, okay, I'll go do that so that I can keep feeling these people show me attention. But I'm like, I could feel I wasn't a good actor. I'd lose out parts to people constantly. But I'm like, you know, um, it was, I put out bad work, but it was the best work I could do at the time. And that was good enough, which is a complete and utter departure from someone who has natural aptitude in multiple areas mm-hmm. and also a good amount of personal neglect at home. So then anytime a stranger would be like, oh my gosh, you're really good at that. Like, can I feel safe here? Are you going to pay attention to me? Is somebody going to notice me? Yeah. Do you notice any similarities between acting and your medical career? Like, I know you just kind of mentioned some of that, right? But anything else that you've noticed you've pulled from medicine into now your time in LA and acting? I mean, the one thing I have is a work ethic. Where, like, mm. in general, I mean, physicians know this. Like, you have to deal with all these patients. Like, a lot of people don't have a work ethic, you know. Um, there are plenty of, I mean, by and large, most physicians, like, have to be somewhat organized and self-disciplined if you're going to make it that far. Mm-hmm. I knew how to, like, read power. I don't know how much of that is medicine-related. Mm. I think... Being a female from an immigrant family, all that stuff, like, I was going to have to do that no matter where I went. And the more I pursue acting, the more I don't see many similarities. Because, by Mm -hmm. and large, I've seen a lot of physicians do poorly when they come into the creative realm because they're so used to being right all the time or there's this hierarchy so they um they want to they want to voice their authority you have to know in the arts when to shut up it's humbling but to me in you know the healthy way um a lot of physicians don't want to look at themselves um, they, a lot of physicians are just a one-way valve. A lot of physicians are way too intellectual. That's my biggest block in my acting. They're mm-hmm. so heady. They're disconnected from relations. Um, the way they set boundaries is just by being a one-way informational authoritative valve. Um, at least when I was in medicine, I think it's changed, but, um, we were being, you know, trained by boomers a lot of condescension, scorn, contempt, dismissal. Those were very effective tools to train other doctors. You can't use that in the creative realm. It shuts people down. Um, and this sense of self-aggrandization and self-inflation, like most physicians don't even realize how much of that they have. So, um, yeah, I, 
And But then that makes sense of why I feel so at home here for all of the non-creature comforts I have. This feels natural and easy to me. And whenever I go, go get medical care and the physician comes in, I'm like, you're still doing this crap? Like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, you're, and you're going to do this for another 15 years? Like, gross. You know, <laughs> like, I can't imagine being calcified into something that I had decided at the age of 16. Hmm. I have heard a very similar chat about that. I love that word calcification. That's a great medical term. But why would I be the same person I was at 16 now? Like, I can't even imagine taking advice from 16-year-old me. Why would I even think I'd want to be doing the same thing that I thought I'd be doing when I was 16? Hello, we've evolved as people. And I think, yeah. You know, physicians and I can think of several, like, especially dancers that I meet. Like, it's just they're like, they're like, this is home. This is it. Whatever Mm -hmm. shape of dancer Mm -hmm. I have to become, be it a teacher, a choreographer, whatever, like, this is where I belong. And I have met physicians who are like, especially because... By and large, if you have to be sensitive to pain or you wouldn't go into a healthcare field, right? I mean, the, the true, the, of like one, one case at a time, one person at a time, you're dispensing some sort of relief. It makes sense to them. Um, whereas for me, I was just doing that because like, it seemed like it was a good idea and people looked up to that idea, but not because it was a, Mm -hmm. it it was a true need in me that needed to be fulfilled. But I have met plenty of people who like, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. At 16, they, they smelled their way home. Yeah. And I think that's true for, well, it is true for a lot of careers, right? Like you meet people who like actors, right? Who've been doing this forever and they love it. It's every, in every fiber of their being. But then you meet the people who are now calcified, calcified against the industry, right? I Yeah, I've got friends that I can think of so many in my head, friends who in medicine, like you, when you met them, you're like, this is it. You're just pure joy exuding from you in the operating room. Like you're, this is your calling and I think that's, and then I kind of feel like, okay, well, if this is if this is their calling, why can't it be mine too? Why am I not feeling this, right? And I think that was a big shocker for me. And I, and I think in medicine, we kind of put a bit more of that, this is your calling, right? You're called to serve in the medical field, where... I don't know what it is about healthcare. I think it's because it's such a self, like, you know, it's selfless profession. But I remember thinking in my head, so many people don't enjoy their jobs, right? They just go to work, they do their work, they make the money, they come home, and that's fine. Why am I feeling this like, no, I need to have every fiber of my being feeling like I love medicine because it's a calling. I don't know why we do that to ourselves. I think I I felt less of than a calling of just like, can I be the top of some heap? 
you know, like it was that for me, I was just so competitive. I needed something I could, you know, sort of point to, to justify like being alive. So, mm-hmm. um, and I like competing. I mean, there's a competitive aspect to, um, mm-hmm. acting, you know, even there's a part of me that people would used to ask do you, what do you miss medicine? And I would always say the same thing. I don't miss medicine, but I miss that feeling of mastery. Cause I, at when I, like I knew what I knew and I knew exactly what to do with all kinds of things. And that feeling of just surety, um, I lost when I decided, you know, when I came in here, but now I'm just starting, especially in my co-star auditions. I know when I can hit it. And part of me is sometimes I'm like, ladies, step aside because you're up against me for this. And I know sometimes when I just like wipe the floor with my auditions, like, you know, because I also know how I used to do those co-star auditions because a lot of people, they don't have the experience. They don't have the know whatever, you know, um, I haven't gotten there in my guest star level yet. Um, you know, that's for a lot of bunch of reasons and, you know, maybe someday that'll change and maybe I'll still be alive by the time I get good enough and maybe there'll be parts, maybe they'll, but whatever, like I still enjoy that pursuit of it, but I still have that competitive edge. You know, I know every time I get to walk on set, I'm part of the 1% in the world, like even less, like how many people get to walk on set out of 7 billion people in the world, much less in Hollywood, You know, like I know it may not look like much on the outside in some ways as I look around my one bedroom apartment, but like in some ways, like I'm one of the luckiest people to live on this planet ever. So I'll take that. Whereas like with medicine, I was just like, I'm supposed to feel better than I feel. That's a Hmm. problem. Hmm. I I agree with the competition thing. I think, you know, that there needs to be a healthy competition. And if you like that competitiveness about yourself, which I know I'm a very competitive person, and I love that about myself. And I know now in acting, I'm competing against people who've been doing this since they were babies. And so I have to work really hard in order to try and be that 1% of the 1%. So I have to train, I have to be prepared, because this is these are the people I want to compete against. They're the best of the best. And that's what I love about the competition, is that, you know, I, I guess that sure comes down to like being on the top of the heap of something, but it's a driver, for sure. It was a driver in my academic career. I want to be the best of the best of the best. And then slowly you realize, as you travel through your academic career, you're now with other people who are also the best of the best of the best and same with acting right now I'm like in the union I'm now like uh, oh I'm not just competing against Joe Schmo down the street for some small little community theater project which I love to do but now I'm like the in the Olympics okay bring it on I'm ready for it I love it mm-hmm. yeah I would say though and I don't just you know, like it's what flashes through my mind as you're talking, like physicians are good at working harder, but you have to be, work in the right way. 
to be an actor. And mm-hmm. sometimes I see a lot mm-hmm. of like people putting effort into things. I'm like, you know, scene study class or what, like, but it's like working harder to be an actor is different. You know, it's a different mm-hmm. kind of work. Um, like watching a tape that's good and watching a tape that's bookable is almost imperceptible to the general public. So to develop a casting director's eyes and see what it is that, and then to do that work, it's a type of work. And it's almost like the word harder doesn't, isn't the right way to go about it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's so, cause it's, that's when like the head totally obstructs it. Um, you know, Mm. it's, it's the letting go of control that, Mm. right, right. The reason you let out that sigh is like physicians by and large don't know how to do it. Not to be crass. It's not safe to. Not to be crass, but this is, I think, the effective analogy. Mm -hmm. It's like, you need to climax. But the thing is, whenever you're you're in that, you have to fully be in the moment and not be asking yourself the whole time, like, am I climaxing? Am I climaxing yet? Did I I come yet? Did I come? Is this the what I'm going to supposed to? Like, you're never going to get it that way. It's the... Full on opposite through the looking glass the other way, which is so personal and it's the, it's the opposite of working harder, but it's a Mm. type of work. So I guess you call call it harder, but it's like, yeah, it's hard to quantify. So how, how did you, how do you get there? How have you worked in the last seven years to get to where you are, to feeling more of that feeling of mastery? Um, I've taken classes at so many different studios with so many (laughs) different people. I've got, I've had to, I mean, the main, like you have to make an endless number of mistakes and yet, and still find yourself curious. Um, you have to understand that there's no one prescribed way. I've also got to the point where I realize each teacher has something to teach me, but then I'm constantly moving on. Late, my my current teacher of late um, is is this right mix of like kindness and truth. And personal insight because they always say your acting problems are your life problems. And in that sense, too, you have to be honest about how you're approaching life and how that comes across in your acting. Um, So, and it's, I admit, like, it's, it's every now and then I'll feel that I've flipped to that other side. You know, but it has to be more, like, if you want to actually work, it has to be consistent, and you have to, like, figure out how to get there. And you do hear plenty of people on podcasts, celebrities, say, like, every role is different. So it's sort of like, 
even the pursuit of that, you have to be open to the fact that you're never going to actually know. Um, hmm. So in the meantime, be honest about your technical abilities, what your tics are, what your tendencies are, where you're being sort of self-serving, you know, or egotistical in your performances. You have, I, for me, I have to have a check on my anxieties with each role. I know like if I'm up against a time crunch, the quality of my work goes way down. If it's a project mm -hmm. with like people that I really, really, really want to work with, I've had to like check that so I can level out. This idea of like letting go and have fun is the opposite of medical training. So how do you let go and have fun in the moment that's not in a, oh my God, this is so fun way, which is completely unmarketable, you know, um, versus like holding on too stiff to all of the lines and are you done speaking so then I can speak. Like how finely tuned is your instrument? Gosh, that's a personal, that's, again, that's personal. What makes you climax? Totally personal. Each partner is totally going to be another personal journey, you know, or else then you're still just performing as inauthentically as anything else, sort of. And it has to be okay to watch yourself be that bad. Mm, yeah. And I think that's where, that's where growth happens, I think. And I know I, what was big for me was realizing that, the mistakes that I'm making in acting and the badness I've done in acting, the world will not end and no, nobody will die. But I had that same feeling of anxiety that that was the case because I was making a mistake. Because that's what medicine gave me. This feeling of, oh my God, I made a mistake. Bad things are going to happen. Where it's like... No, just let yourself be vulnerable and let yourself make the mistakes so you can grow from it. Yeah, like the shame factor, you know. Um, and I think that comes to a lot of people, you know, especially depending on the yeah. home you, the home of origin and how mm -hmm. mistakes were dealt with there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also our ego needs change through time. Again, that's why I really enjoyed like acting makes you be honest with yourself, like really in the moment in circles of context, right? There's no one absolute because something, a, a mistake is going to hit me differently depending on the role and the part and where I, where I am in, you know, in my career and my development. Um, Yeah. I did want to touch on something that the other doctor actor I've spoke to, Francesca, Dr. Decker, brought up that was a bit of an eye-opener for me and a struggle I was having with acting. And that was the idea of emotional restraint and how that she had labeled emotional restraint, how as doctors that is ingrained in us to not show emotions, even though we do feel, obviously we do feel them, because that's going to help the patient in front of us who's dealing with horrible things. It's going to help us get through this. Doesn't. But then now as act as actors trying to, you know, for me, it was like, I need to sh emote sadness in this scene. 
I'm, sh- I'm feeling sadness, but the person who's like my acting coach would be like, yeah, I'm seeing nothing on your face. I'm like, great. I'm a fantastic doctor, but a terrible actor because that was a, I hate to use the word block, but that was kind of like a block for me being like, but I'm feeling sad. Like it's not showing on your face. Great. That is rewarded in medicine, not rewarded in acting. Have you found that at all? Sure. I think that's with life, right? Like any customer service representative, anyone, you know, like you can't go through life that way, period. That's why so Mm -hmm. few people are actors, period, period. Um, It's also why, unfortunately, I'm such a good co-star actor like I'm just the human background I'm like I'm the I'm the wallpaper I'm the human wallpaper moving the storyline along or something like that I usually story along yeah yeah um but most people have masks you know and especially in healthcare or any of those industries you have to like you don't panic people say you don't panic on the plane until the flight attendant panics, right? Like you're in Mm -hmm. charge of those emotions like that. um, But also people do that in their marriages all the time. They're like, you can't flash what you're actually feeling to your partner um, or else there are consequences. Um, And there are some people who uh, have that just natural ability where they're things just move across their face like all the time sally jenkins to me comes to mind like it's so like her face is always so telling so um i think that's an ability that most people don't have not just physicians Mm -hmm. and then number two especially when you're coming at this as a second act and also from a highly intellectual field. Um, so for me personally, like I would read it and I'm like, oh, this is this is what's supposed to come out here. This is what's supposed to, I'm letting the script drive what I think my words are supposed to be and what it's supposed, and then like that doesn't work. That's not gonna get you anywhere because you're supposed to be the person lifting it up off the page and That requires genuinely feeling stuff. Then once people genuinely feel stuff, I think things start to go across. But I feel like that's that magic, imaginary um, ability to like step into another dimension fully where like on a cellular level some things are happening you know that then you're genuinely sad and then so of course it spills out on your face but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you can't I mean to a large degree showing emotions is the tougher, less effective way to act your way through a scene, I think. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, in general, in medicine, I think a lot of people don't know what they feel. But it's also because 
it sorts for those kinds of people. Hang around enough artists enough. Oh my God. Like it's like they're always emoting or, you know what I mean? It's like such the other end of the spectrum. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. On a totally different note on a more like, I don't know, casual note. Uh, do you have any fun, crazy stories from your times on set? Um, just the other day, I didn't realize I was giving a huge speech until right before the scene because they weren't giving out sides <laughs> or just a whole bunch of things. And I, uh, luckily, it was like not like an emotive thing. It was more an informational. I'm supposed to like tell all these people, this is what's happening and that's what's happening. This and this and this and this. And two, like it at least had a couple of props that I could use to, but at first they like someone's handing me a microphone. They're like, this is for your next bit. I'm like, I have lines in the next thing. He's like, you're so funny. Cause there'd been a mix up of sides. Also this set is really, um, secret. Like they're, they, they don't like to release sides. So, luckily, we had rehearsal, and then we were breaking for lunch, and then we we're doing it. And you can't tell anybody because, like on set, you kind of have no safe friends. Everybody's working so hard. Like the surgeon doesn't ever get to turn to the anesthesiologist and be like, "Oh my god, I've never done one of these before. I don't know what we're gonna do." <laughs> right? You're just like, "That's all yeah. in private." Um, and so, like, I just had to like pull it out, you know, just like figure it out. And, um, you know, again, it's like, God, you just don't realize how many mistakes you can make. I had glanced at the call sheet, like when I woke up and I didn't think I saw my number, but also too, honestly, my eyes are changing. Like, uh, like you, you gotta make all the mistakes. (laughs) And I was like, for a little bit there, I was in big trouble, you know, but, um, (laughs) yeah, it's, and so that's that thing of like, it took so much to like make it seem nor I wasn't doing a great job either, you know, but you know, it was, but like I needed to be not noticeable in my performance Mm. and it took so much to get there given all those other circumstances Mm. and no one's ever going to hear about that nobody on set is like oh my god you really did such a good job for somebody who did like you can't do that you know and it's like having to like be willing and it's okay to be completely kind of neglected which I guess in a way again it goes back to my childhood I'm like I'm used to being neglected and not paid attention to this is fine you know so yeah is there anything that you're looking forward to coming up um um let's see like my auditions you know have like started to like the 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 roles are getting better. There's that period of time where you can feel you're getting better even before you see any sort of like pin or booking from it. So it'll Mm -hmm. be interesting to see how that goes. I put together a short film. We're in post right now that I wrote and directed and 
is in and you know it's a first short film but I'm so glad that I finally did it you know again you're I learned a lot um as everyone anyone would with through something like that and um the pandemic helped, like, in a way for me, like, just quiet down all this frenzy of classes and having to go some places. And um, and I'm actually in a place where I'm, like, I'm actually really peaceful and happy. Um, also, like, I'm a working actor. This is it. And I know that that could change, you know, any calendar year. But it's a really lovely period. I, I'm... I'm I'm so, I mean, I can say, like, now that there's enough distance and the the hurricanes kind of calm down, I'm, like, so proud of myself for doing that as late as it was because, like, I, I'm always reminded I could have missed out on this. Like, I easily could have just stayed. There is everything, every intellectual reason to stay but like wow like there was more out there I remember I was at a I was at a doctor's appointment once and she was probably about my age a little younger and she looked at me I remember her saying to me every day I wake up and wonder what else is out there and I was like there's so much out there you know, it's somebody who never left school in a way, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, there's so much. And I love seeing like there's so much out here and I get to see it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And thank you, Eliza, for being my guest this week. Thank you for bringing a lovely community together, finding all of us out there who are doctors as well as actors. If you're listening and you're a doctor as well as an actor, definitely come find us on Facebook. We're literally doctor actors of Facebook. Come find us. We're a really lovely community. We are your people. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye! Second Act Actors is produced and edited by me, Janet McMorty. Theme music by Guillaume. Additional sound editing by David Studio. Additional video editing by Jackie Wadewer. Show notes written by Sarah Hopkinson. I record using Riverside FM. If you're interested in developing an interview-based webcast like mine, I highly recommend this platform. Shoot me an email and I'll direct you to the wonderful folks there. If you or someone you know is interested in being a guest, email me at secondactactors at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. My love language is words of affirmation, so compliments, constructive criticism, and feedback are always welcome and encouraged. Negative Nancys, Judgy McJudgersons, or Debbie Downers, unless you're Rachel Dratch, regarding me or my guests are not welcome. It takes serious courage to share your story with the world, so if you're tempted to negatively comment about someone else's story, please ask your therapist why you're such a garbage person. Save the drama for the stage. On that happy note, I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Second Act Actors. Bye!